Hi everyone, this is Alana Esterman and I am the host of Sibling Stories, the very first podcast dedicated solely to the siblings of loved ones with mental illness. During each episode, I will shed light on the challenges and success that being the sibling of a loved one with mental illness can bring, featuring an interview of a sibling with their own unique story and perspective. Also, as a positive psychology practitioner, I'll deliver positive psychology-based tips and guidance to help improve sibling communication and prioritize self-care with an end goal of fostering hope, resilience, and support along with inspiration. For years, mental illness has been the thing that was a taboo subject. It just wasn't discussed and it was swept under the rug for fear of embarrassment, shame, and even blame. There was a stigma attached to it and only in recent years are we creating a world where this topic is becoming more acceptable. That said, there is a population that is still in the dark, still suffers in silence and alone, the sibling. It's the sibling who is there weathering the storm alongside their loved one and is often forgotten and too afraid to speak up. It's the sibling who has to sometimes become a totally different version of themselves to survive. It's the sibling who'll be there in the later years to be the sole caretaker of their loved ones when their parents can no longer do so. And it's the sibling who worries that their own children may develop mental illness. Finally, it's the sibling whose perspective and experience can sometimes be the shift that pulls a family forward into the healing and the growth that is needed so often, sometimes daily. This podcast is for all those siblings out there who need a voice, either a voice to listen to or a voice to speak. Now, this is a topic that is very near and dear to my heart. This is my story too. And I am the sibling of a loved one with mental illness who has never before told the story publicly until now. I always thought I was alone as a sibling, but at a NAMI family to family meeting, I met another sibling. And for the first time ever, I had someone who shared a similar story to my own. I felt validated and I felt supported. It's time we start shining a light on the many stories of empowerment and hope so we can lift up other siblings who still feel alone on their journey to wellness with their sibling. For me, when I was growing up, I tried to be the perfect child so that I wouldn't further burden anyone. When I faced what felt like inescapable adversity at home, I would go numb. As an adult, I strived for unattainable perfection. I sped through life, chasing achievement, obsessed with acquiring. I thought if I created a perfect life that I could erase the pain of the one I was trying to escape and that I'd finally feel safe. I sped so fast that I developed anxiety and my body tried to warn me through chest pains. And when failure happened, I was ill-equipped to bounce back, sometimes paralyzed in bed which was depression. I lost years trying to escape the past by running into the future. At 40, 
I was diagnosed with high blood pressure. Now, even though I worked out and watched my diet, I got that diagnosis. I could not believe it. I realized that this was affecting my lifespan and could take away the golden years spent traveling and enjoying my life with my family. This led me to learn to choose what I was missing, the present moment where my children are laughing and my husband is sharing his life with me. I became certified in the study of flourishing, positive psychology, where I learned to do more than just survive. I learned to thrive. I was able to rewire my brain for positivity where my default became present moment living. I began to slow down rather than have to do homework with my kids or take them to soccer. It became a get to where I could watch their faces change as they learned something new. I began to appreciate the temporary string of precious moments that make up our lives that if you miss even one of them, you'll never get it back. I developed a deep appreciation for my life and something unexpected happened. I was able to let go of the anger towards my family for the difficulties of my childhood. Instead, I became grateful for my childhood because I was the well child and I had something that so few people had perspective. I became grateful for my parents. I was able to see that they did their very best. I developed compassion towards my brother who was dealt such an unfair hand in life. My energy shift was felt by my family, which eventually shifted their energy. My brother became curious about how I achieved my state of wellness and began spending time with me weekly. We'd geek out and have conversations around levering, leveraging neuroscience. My brother and I realized that his genius was still there after all these years, and we'd try out fun positive psychology experiments. It was during one of these times that I pointed out that my brother's true self was right before us. He was loving, giving, creative, caring, and funny. Underneath the challenging thoughts and emotions, his authentic self was always there. My original brother that I played with as a child. He vowed to do whatever he could to live his true self as often as possible, which was available to him in the present moment, along with joy and connection. I knew then that my childhood had happened for a reason, and it was to share my perspective with others so that they too could experience the transformation that my brother and I had made together. I want to be able to fast forward this process for other siblings who are living the way we once lived. The illness doesn't have to be the thing that brings a family down. It can be what empowers a family as you share in the growth that comes from bouncing back from challenges together. Incredibly, on a walk with my brother just yesterday, we had the one moment that I had been waiting for for my entire life. He apologized to me for all of the pain that he might have ever caused me. And even now, as I speak to you, I cannot believe how lucky I am to be able to share that with you. All I ever wanted was my brother's love as a child. And there it was in front of me for the taking. I used to always fear what would happen when I would be the one to care for my brother. But that fear is gone. I know that each challenge that comes our way will build us up 
because it's fueled by the love that we share as it grows stronger each day. And I know that this is a fear that so many siblings have, and boy, do I have an inspirational story for you. When the brother of my first interviewee started showing symptoms, Tatiana stepped into the role of sole caretaker at the age of, brace yourself people, just 28. And she does so with strength, grace, and not a single whiny moment of self-pity or despair. Her story is that of unending courage, resilience, and support, and she is the person who represents to me what the future can be for all of us when we too become sole caretakers of our siblings. As for her brother, after just five years, he is thriving on his own, having Tatiana as an excellent example of both self-care and perseverance. Here's Tatiana's story. So welcome, Tatiana. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your family. Hi, Alana. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast today. My name is Tatiana. I am from Brooklyn, born and raised, uh, but my family and I, we actually live out on Staten Island now for a few years. I am the eldest of seven siblings. Yes, there are seven of us. Wow. Um, And so I have five brothers and a sister. And yeah, that's pretty much it. I'm a member of NAMI. I've been a member of NAMI for about six or seven months now because I do have a brother diagnosed with a mental illness. Wow. So tell us what life was like being the oldest of seven. Life was busy. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Don't, I, I don't ever remember my life not having any sibling. My brother is just like three years younger than me. So I don't remember my life without him. You know what I mean? I've, and I have a whole bunch of other siblings as well, but we're the closest in age. So life was very busy, very entertaining, never a quiet room in the house, but it was fun. <laughs> Yeah, no, that that sounds like a lot of fun. I'm sure you have a lot more great stories around that. When you mentioned your brother, and and I know that you had said that also you're a member of NAMI, tell us a little bit more about your brother specifically when he first became symptomatic and then what had happened in the years that followed that. Sure. So now my brother has a diagnosis of schizoaffective disorder. He started showing symptoms about five years ago. He was in his mid-20s. And when his symptoms first started to manifest to us, it kind of just looked like depression, you know, just kind of putting responsibilities off to the side. He always worked. He had quit his job without telling any family members, isolating. You know, he was definitely isolating, not speaking to really any family members or any friends, and just really, really to himself. So when he first started having symptoms, it was more so just like depression symptoms, not wanting to get out of bed, not wanting to be productive or anything like that. And as time passed on, then there were some episodes that he had that led us to, you know, take him into the psych ward. And I would say after about three years of being in and out of the hospital and different situations that had come about as well, that's when we were finally able to get a diagnosis. You know, when he saw one doctor consistently enough to get diagnosed with what he currently has now. So. Wow, that that sounds incredibly difficult and challenging, especially because growing up, it seems as though he wasn't symptomatic. This was not his kind of norm. That's correct. Yeah, my brother was the social butterfly. He's one of those people that is annoyingly good at everything he tries, <laughs> you know, and so always very responsible. Yeah. <laughs> and so always very responsible, always worked. He moved up in the retail space. 
you know, he was even like an assistant manager. And then just for us, it felt like from one day to the next, just something switched. I'm sure his experience was different, but from just the outside us looking in, it was just like from one day to the next, it's like, why isn't he working? Why doesn't he want to talk to us about this? It was very, and he's more so a private person by nature anyway, but it was just like, we didn't know what was going on with him and we didn't know how to help him because he, I don't even think knew what was going on with him. Right. And so then you thought it was depression first off. Mm -hmm. And so how did you approach him? What did you say? Probably not the right approach in the very beginning to be quite honest with you, because I did not know that it was going to get to this point, you know, that he was going to be diagnosed with a mental illness. I literally thought it was just kind of laziness. We had a couple of changes in our life that maybe were affecting him, but I'm just like, come on, get it together. Like you got to work. We have things that we need to do. And then as time went on and he started having like different episodes, like he had an episode with my father in the car and that's what prompted us calling the ambulance the first time around. And he was in the hospital for about 10 days at that point. And he still didn't have an accurate diagnosis because it does take them time to see the same doctor over and over again for them to be like, okay, well, this is, you know, what he has and this is what can be treated with. So I would say for the first three years of my brother having symptoms, he was not properly diagnosed and he definitely wasn't in treatment, not consistent treatment, at least, you know, when he would be hospitalized, he would have treatment. Right. And of course, once they leave, there's not much follow up there. So it's really up to the person to be like, hey, I have this going on. I really do need the help. And unfortunately, it takes a long time to get there, especially because he had a normal childhood. You know, he started showing symptoms at 25. Wow. So let's talk a little bit more about what had happened when he was initially hospitalized and then, you know, kind of just allowed to essentially leave and, and go back to his life. Where were you with him? And then what was the thought around what you should be doing next? Yeah. So I had actually just gotten back from vacation when I had gotten the news that my brother was in the hospital. They didn't want to tell my parents didn't want to tell me while I was away. So when I got home, they told me, you know, he had an incident in the car. He kind of had, I guess, like a panic attack of some sort. He was hospitalized for 10 days. Then they let him go. At this point, my brother and I were living together. And so, you know, try and encourage him to go to the follow up appointments. But He wasn't already an adult at this time. And so he can make the decision whether he wants to go to the follow-up appointments or not. And he chose not to. He didn't think there was anything wrong with him. He didn't need medication. We were the ones that needed help, not him. He was totally fine. And so it was really a struggle and not really knowing what to do, to be quite honest with you. It's, It's like, what can you do for someone who, you know, there's something wrong. You don't know what's wrong. But they don't feel that something's wrong and they're an adult. So because of HIPAA, which, you know, I understand, there's not much that we can do for that person besides just kind of try to be there for them and try to massage getting help into, you know, something that they're looking forward to doing. But it took my brother, to be quite honest with you, he was, you know, homeless, street homeless, like he was in jail for some time. It took a really long time for my brother to get to the realization, like, I need help. Right. And I'm right there with you. I know that it, it can take a number of years for that to happen, you know, really just even with with anybody, you know, to ask for help. So, you know, to go for this kind of level of life transformation and, and live in acceptance, I, I think is probably one of the most challenging things 
you know, not just for your loved one, but for yourself as well. So I know that you had just mentioned that he had lived on the streets. He had been in jail. Tell us a little bit about that time, what it was like for you, and then how it kind of just ended up going in a more positive direction. Yeah, sure. So we're talking about a look back of about five years and Mm -hmm. only really the past two years has my brother been diagnosed and studied in treatment. Prior to two years ago, he didn't want to get any help, didn't think anything was wrong with him. And unfortunately, there were some incidents that had happened with the family where no one really trusted him in the house, you know, and so that's Mm -hmm. what kind of led him to be in the shelter system and street homeless because it's like, okay, you don't want to get help but we also need to protect ourselves. You know what I mean? So it was a really tough decision to take him to a shelter. And then, you know how the shelter systems are, you miss curfew, you end up on the street and really, really hard times for me because me knowing that I did have an apartment, but I just didn't feel safe since he wasn't in treatment made me feel so bad as a sister, you know, like I'll be having dinner one day and it's like, Oh, I wonder if my brother had dinner, you know? And because he was symptomatic he would lose things. He would lose. We would give him a cell phone. He would lose it. You know, I would tell him, hey, I'm going to go Saturday at 10 o'clock to take you for breakfast. And he wouldn't come down. And because of the shelter system, you can't just go and ask, hey, I'm here to see this person. You know what I mean? Like you have to depend on that person to pick up the phone or be outside. And so those were really, really tough days. And it was just because he was symptomatic you know, he didn't feel like he needed help. And as I've spoken to other people that have family members with mental illness, unfortunately, a lot of them end up on the street at some point or another. It was just so sad, like the hardest thing, probably the hardest three years, those three years, it would be like, I would randomly get a phone call from like a block number or an unknown number. And I would pick it up just maybe it's my brother calling me from someone else's phone or calling me from a pay phone or, you know, it was three years of constantly, you know, trying to see what we can do to help him without putting ourselves in jeopardy as well. You yeah. know, it's, it's a fine, fine line to try and walk yeah. and try and figure that out. Mm-hmm. And when he was street homeless, you know, he would lose the phone and stuff like that. So I would lose contact with him. Sometimes I would just show up at the shelter and see if maybe he was outside, maybe smoking a cigarette or maybe, I learned to get really friendly (laughs) with people like, hey, have you seen this kid around here? Just so that I can get an idea because I would at least like to hear from him once a week or once every other week, you know, whether it's him calling me or him showing up at someone's house, like, hey, your brother showed up here. So what happened at that point was there was a few weeks that I hadn't heard from him. And I showed up at the shelter. The social worker told me, you know, he had missed curfew a few times. So I'm like, okay, where's, you know, where is he? And it was actually around this time of year, three years ago, the holidays had passed and he hadn't showed up at anyone's house. So we're like, okay, where's my brother? You know, we had to put him missing. And so we put it in with the police department and we filed like an official missing persons report. And then I had to make the really tough decision of posting it on my Facebook, which was... I think I sat there with that post for so long. Like I had it all drafted. I had the pictures. Like waiting to post it and like unable to press the button. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I had spoken with my mom. I had spoken with my, one of my brothers that's older. Like 
you know, our brother's been missing. We have no leads. The holidays passed. He didn't show up at anyone's house, which wasn't like him. You know, he would show up somewhere every once in a while. Mm-hmm. And we made the decision to post it on Facebook. And I was just so, you know, scared. Like, what are people going to think of my brother? What are people going to think of me? What are people going to think of my family? You know, it's like you're putting yourself out there on social media, being vulnerable, like, hey, I we need help. You know, how did we let it get to this point? Like all those thoughts you have, you know, and and honestly, I'm happy that I posted it and I'm happy that I pushed myself because really all the backlash I was thinking about was myself. What are people going to think about me? What are people going to think about my family? And for me, it was just, okay, but the end goal is to find your brother. So if you have to post this to get to that end goal, then that's just what you need to do, you know, put, even if you're putting yourself out there. And we did it, and I thought I was probably going to get, like, a lot of backlash. And if, you know, anyone had anything negative to say, it didn't land on my ears. Everyone was super helpful. It, it was like my brother had gone viral in, like, literally a matter of, like, 60 minutes. I had people emailing me, asking me for the flyer, They people, you know, taking time and money out of their pockets and out of their day to help me post up the flyers. Sometimes when you you don't want to do something, that's the very thing that you do have to do because it just opened up that door. There's no way that I could have gotten that flyer out without the help of other people, you know? And because of that, we actually did find my brother probably less than a week after posting it. That is such an incredible story of, of bravery and, and courage. I just am I'm so incredibly impressed by that. And you just don't even realize how the world really is out there to help. You know, we, we do live in a really friendly place, but it's not really the kind of place that you first off think is, is going to be receptive. You know, we, I think we go straight to judgment and we go straight to what, what is this going to look and feel like just because we're still not yet in a place in our society where mental illness is something that we're all openly talking about. So you circumvented that and you did it on social media. Yeah. So kudos to you. And it worked. So that's amazing. And I love that you said that, you know, sometimes the things that are the scariest are the things that we have to do the most. So that's like an unbelievable growth moment for you as well. And it kind of just leads me to the next question. When you were then able to find him, was that then the aha moment where things turned around or was this just kind of still the middle of your journey? I would say it was probably still the middle of the journey because we still didn't know like what he was dealing with. And because he had been on the streets, rightly so, you know, he blamed the family for that. And like, how could you guys let me? And I understood that. So a lot of times, even like when we found him, I called him right away and he was like, if it was like nothing, you know, like, and I'm like practically to the point of tears, you know, because he's fine and at least he's safe, you know. But I would say that's like the middle of the journey. There, The turning point in our journey was my brother had actually gotten arrested where we found him. And it's, it's so funny how life works out because if I wouldn't have found my brother when I did, which ironically on my Facebook memories, it came up three years to this day that we found him. 
So wow. it's three years ago in 2018 on this very day that we're on talking. this day. On this day. So we're supposed to do the podcast on this day. Yeah, exactly. That's a thing. Like, this is a thing. This is a thing. Like, <laughs> it's a full circle moment again. Yes. Remember <laughs> three years ago, you would have told me we would be in this position and I would be like, yeah, right. I wouldn't have believed. Wow, it. look at you. That's incredible. Yeah. So so once we found him, luckily we found him when we did because about two to three weeks after that. I had gotten a call from where he was at that he had gotten himself into some trouble and he was arrested. And so, you know, I went with my uncle to the court hearing and my brother, he didn't want anything to do with us. You know, it's like he didn't have any malice towards us. But at that time, it was like, I don't really want your help. You know, I've needed your help all this time and you guys haven't been able to help me because we didn't know how to help him, unfortunately, you know. And so, yeah, so he was in jail and, you know, we could have bailed him out, but we were like, okay. This is like the perfect moment. You know, he got in trouble for doing something because he was symptomatic. Let's hope and see maybe this judicial system, they'll be able to diagnose him, give him some medicine, maybe force him into treatment. Because remember, all these three years, it's him being symptomatic, but not in treatment, you know, Mm -hmm. and us not being able to do anything as the family since he's an adult. So we were like, in a way, yes, it was horrible that he was in that situation, but in a way it gave us some hope that maybe someone else will see what we've been seeing and help him, you know? And that's when he he spent about three months in jail and that's when he was diagnosed. And I'm going to be very honest with you. That was the first time that I really realized what his symptoms were because I didn't know all the symptoms that are associated with schizoaffective disorder, sure. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Why, why would you just randomly know that? Yeah, exactly. So yeah. once I started looking it up, I'm like, wow, you know, it's been really tough for me to deal with this, you know, seeing my brother go through all of this, not knowing how to help him, him not knowing how to express it, but just imagine what he was actually going through. You know what I mean? Right. A lot of times we think of, oh, this is affecting me. And yes, of course, our feelings are valid and stuff like that. But I just feel like we just need to have a little bit more grace for the person that actually has the mental illness, because we don't even know what's going on in their mind. You know what I mean? It is huge that you just said that, because I feel like so many times we forget about that. Right. And we just move right into, well, this is the way it's meant to be. And you've got to start doing A, B and C and D. But what about taking a moment to even just take in what it is that, you know, your loved one is actually experiencing, just knowing that this is the new normal, that it will never be as it once was. Your story is a rare story for having only been five years. Right. And then on top of that, you're a sister. Yeah. You know, so like you're stepping in as a caregiver, right? But you are so incredibly strong and so sound and so put together and confident. And the, the story that you just told, it's going to change the lives of so many people. Thank you. No, I, I, I appreciate that. And I'm going to be honest with you. There was some really tough days, you know, some of those days when my brother was in jail or, you know, when he was street homeless, when I didn't know where he was at. I had some really tough days. I had some days where I myself didn't want to get out of bed, you know? Yes, I helped my brother a lot, but I think that he has helped me so much in really finding like some type of purpose in life and really just looking at people and not judging them. You know, you see someone that's homeless. Nobody wants to be homeless. You know, they're homeless for whatever their reasons are. And, you know, my brother's situation, you know, with what he deals with, it just opened my eyes to just life and enjoying it and, you know, trying to be there for people when you can. I went through a similar kind of thing and I know this really isn't about me, but, you know, at some point you just start to realize, wow, we're the lucky ones. 
you know, because we thank God are the well sibling. And then you just start to notice there is this level of appreciation that you can exist in your daily life. And you you didn't really have it before because you kind of just always took health for granted. And then something changed and it shifts forever. So a, a lot of people just end up being angry. And I think a lot of people just end up saying, why me? Why do I have to deal with this? But you didn't do that. You did the polar opposite of that. Is that like, have you always been like that? I feel like for the most part I have. And, and to be honest with you, here's the thing. This is not going to change. You understand? Like, this is my life now. This is my brother's life. So I have to just adapt to it. Because if I keep trying to fight it, what's going to happen? Right. I'm going to get myself crazy. Right. My poor brother's not going to get the treatment that he needs. You right. know, and the goal is to get my brother 100% sustainable on his own. Self-sufficient. We're almost there. We're not there yet. But we're getting closer. I don't, I don't know. I guess I've always been that way. It's just, you know, I'm a very solution oriented person. Yes. We can complain about things for like a few minutes. And then after that, it's like, okay, what are we going to do? Right. And the longest time I didn't know what we were going to do. Cause I didn't know what we were dealing with. As soon as he got that diagnosis and I got him on board with treatment, everything changed. Right. No, that's amazing because it's so true. You know, the longer you live in the place of complaining, the more paralyzed you are. So it sounds like, as you say, you're so solution oriented and, and you understand there's a certain level of acceptance mixed with being able to maximize who your brother's going to be. Yeah. You have to meet people where they're at. Yeah. Like if I had to say like, what is acceptance? Meeting people where they're at. And then trying to figure out a way where you guys can both move forward, you know? And I think that part of recovery is the person accepting their diagnosis and, of course, continuing treatment and taking medicine, you know, whatever that person needs to do to help themselves. But a big part of it is also the family coming to terms with the person's diagnoses. You know what I mean? Because it's like, I've had my brother my whole life and yeah, maybe he was, you know, a little private and, you know, like hanging out with his friends, but I never knew that this was going to turn out and that he was going to be diagnosed with this and have, you know, these symptoms and some of the symptoms, you know, just the regular person can be, it can be very scary, especially when it comes from one moment to the next, you know, what is it that I'm experiencing? So it takes time for the person to settle in with their diagnosis and come to terms with it. And I think it takes time for the family, you know, to come to terms with the diagnosis as well. And that's something that we don't really talk about often. My sibling used to be like this, or my loved one used to do this and now they don't do this. And it's like, yeah, they probably won't do that anymore. Like, a part of it is us educating ourselves so that we can find the best way to help our loved one. Because I think that with education and just sharing stories with other people, it's just a new way of life and we have to adapt to it and learn. Cause in my opinion, that's the only way he's going to get further in his recovery as well. You know? Absolutely. So now going back to his time in jail, was that the turning point? Yes, I would say that the time in jail was one of the turning points (laughs) that I realized on this. um, I like to call it an adventure because every day is different, you know, and and there's going to be good days and there's going to be bad days. But that was definitely one of the turning points for us to be like, okay, this is his diagnosis. I felt super relieved because I'm like, okay, now we know what's going on. Right. Now we know what the fix can be. And so he did really well. He was released. He had his own place and everything like that. But then there was another valley where he stopped taking his medicine. 
which is common for people that have mental illness, which is something that I've learned. You know, I didn't know that before. I'm just like, well, if you feel good, you just keep taking your medicine, you know? But so, yeah, so he had gotten off his medicine for some time and he ended up again being street homeless. And then I think this was the most recent turning point was he was hospitalized for about six months in Cornerstone Behavioral Health. And they were there able to kind of help him really understand his illness, really teach him different coping mechanisms. And he was there for about six months. And since that stint, he's been very stable. He's been in treatment and he's doing really, really well for himself. So right now, I, I would say that him spending six months under supervision in a facility where it's, you know, a hospital type of setting, it's not a jail. I think that that really helped him. I absolutely agree. I, I think it's amazing that he was even able to be there for six months. You know, we, we hear so often that families struggle to get this kind of care for a, a prolonged amount of time. How did you actually work this out where he was able to stay for that long? We were in a part of his life, so to speak. We weren't on speaking terms with him because once he had gotten off his medicine, once he was released from jail and he was street homeless again, we had lost contact with him again. I don't know how he ended up getting himself into Cornerstone. I think they had called an ambulance for him when he was street homeless. And then from there, they took him to Cornerstone. And since he didn't really have anywhere to go, it worked in his favor because they were able to keep him there for about six months. And then after that, they released him you know, back to the shelter. And then as soon as he got out, he reached out to me on Facebook, like he always does. Whenever he goes missing and he comes back, he reaches out to me on Facebook. You know, from there, obviously, him and I reunited again and he's been stable ever since now he has his own apartment he's in treatment and he's doing really really well but yeah him staying there for six months was really just luck to be quite honest with you because he didn't have much elsewhere to go and he didn't want our assistance in that process so he pretty much navigated that whole process by himself and with his healthcare professionals that that's amazing just amazing that is like the best luck and yeah. it was incredible that he was able to navigate that on his own. And, you know, it, it sounds like the, the transformation has, has happened and, and it happened after being there for six months. So what's now different about him? Now he openly speaks to me about his symptoms. You know, sometimes I'll be with him and I'll notice something and he'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, this is what's happening right now. So he would have never done that. I don't even think two years ago, you know what I mean? Um, and I think that part of that is just, you know, me letting him know like, Hey, I know that this is what we're dealing with and it's cool. As long as you stay in your treatment, I will always be here for you. I think that that's really important for someone who's going through things is just letting them know that you're going to be there for them. You know, like I set my boundaries, you know, as long as you're in treatment, I will be here for you no matter what. And I think that that has made him more comfortable with telling me about what he goes through. Cause I tell him, the more I know about what you go through, the better I can help and understand you, you know, um, because there will be times that he'll be like, oh, you know, I don't want to get together. I'm very tired. And these are plans that we had made like two weeks ago. And then I'll get frustrated because I'm like, come on, we made plans. But then I understand that the medicine has different effects and sometimes it can make him more sleepy and and things of that nature. So I really just had to learn a lot <laughs> and just have some grace with him. Absolutely. So tell me about how you guys communicate, how many times a week, what those phone calls are like. Yeah. So I'm his older sister. Like I said, we're only about three years apart, but I've also taken on the role of his caregiver. So I speak to my brother 
every day, twice a day. Um, I FaceTime him twice a day because I just like to see, you know, how he looks, what he's doing, is if he, is he still wearing the same clothes he was wearing yesterday? Because we're very early on in this journey. And what I have learned is that people can have moments where, you know, the medicine just doesn't work anymore and things of that nature. So I just like to keep up with him every day. Once a week, usually we get together and I see him for a little bit. So, you know, our relationship now is really good. Like I said, it's been five years and the first three years, it was very tumultuous because he was in the street. Him and I didn't really have a good, I was always there to let him know that I was there to help him, but he didn't want my help, you know? And so now I've been able to cultivate that relationship back to how it was when we were children, just by being there for him and and really making time, calling him, showing him, hey, do you need anything? And in the beginning, it was really hard for me to talk to him about anything that wasn't diagnosis related. It was always like, oh, do you have any symptoms? Have you taken your medicine? And now I've learned to, yes, have those conversations, but not all the time. You know, I can still talk to him about what TV shows he's watching or what movie I like to watch, or I don't know, I need to go shopping or what should I cook for dinner? You know, normal conversations that I would have had with him pre-diagnosis because I don't want every conversation that I have with him just to be about his illness. I mean, that's no fun, you know? Right, right. No, it, it sounds like, you know, you're kind of back to the relationship that you guys used to have and you're augmenting it whenever you need to with a little bit of care thrown in, which is such, again, a a difficult line to walk when it comes to being able to balance those things. But, you know, since he's now open and trusting and, and it sounds as though you guys are in such a wonderful place, it seems like you've achieved this. So... So that's such a a wonderful, wonderful story of being able to have something that could really pull you down, but really instead be the thing that creates unity within your family, where you guys have gotten so much stronger and grown together. Tell me a little bit more about your own personal growth through this journey. I've, you know, taken therapy myself this year. I think COVID (laughs) awakened something in all of us. But, you know, I started my own therapy just to kind of help me get through things. And really, you know, the fact that my brother does therapy, that kind of gave me the strength to be like, okay, we're over here for him to work on his things. I also need to work on my things, you know? And so I did put myself in therapy this year and just things that I do for self-care, to be quite honest with you. NAMI has the support group that I do every Wednesday. I am there every Wednesday at seven o'clock without fail. I truly look forward to, you know, speaking with all those, mainly it's parents. There's a few siblings there too. And just share our experiences. I just feel so identified when I speak with those people because, you know, I have friends and I have family and I have a great support system, but there's nothing like speaking with other people who have gone through similar things that you have gone through and know the feeling, you know, like, why is my brother randomly calling me? Is this good or is this bad? Right. <laughs> you know, right. Right. I have the same thing. every time a phone call, I'm like, oh my God, is it bad? It's good. It could be fine. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like just wanting to see how I'm doing. So. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that's been a part of my transformation too, is just realizing like, okay, this is what I'm going to deal with. My brother's going to have this for the rest of his life. I'm going to be around him for the rest of his life. So I might as well just try to educate myself and really just build a community around that because I didn't really have that. You know, I didn't really have, yes, I can talk to my friends and my family, but it's different having a community of people that you can reach out to and 
people, you know, share stories and we laugh and we share resources too, you know, so many things that my brother is able to take advantage of now that I help him with all these programs is I learned about it through, you know, the people at NAMI and the support group at NAMI. So that's, I guess you can say that those are two things that I've done, the support group so that I can share my stories and, and help other people just as other people have helped me and doing like my own therapy have really helped me. And just realizing that this is just what it is and <laughs> I got to make the best of it. You know, there's, there's no use in trying to hide the fact that my brother has, you know, a mental illness. I just embrace it, try to learn and just try to keep moving forward. You are a wonderful example of growth. I cannot thank you enough for having this conversation with me because you just completely inspire me over and over again. And I think that this story is going to be a wonderful inspiration for so many other people that are right now suffering and they're not quite sure that they could actually get to the other side. And and you've managed to do that with your brother inside of five years. And I give him a ton of credit for being able to go the length that he has gone in, in such a quick time as well. It sounds like the future is something that that you are excited about and that you embrace knowing that there will be challenges, but that these are the challenges that that can make you better and, and even stronger. I think that, you know, something that really helps me in learning my brother's illness and his diagnosis is really just understanding that there's going to be great days. There's going to be not so great days. And right now we're having a really good stable period in my brother's life. But I understand that there might be times where he's not having such a great day and he might need to get hospitalized, you know, but at that point it's like, okay, we know what to do to get him back stable. And this is just the way that it's going to be. I think being okay with another episode happening so that when it does happen, it's not like, oh no, you know, it's more so, okay, we've already been through this. Now we know how to get him, you know, the help that he needs. So just really accepting that it's just a normal progression of the illness, you know, whatever may happen, not necessarily because the person's not taking their medicine or anything like that. We know what to do to get the resolution for it. So when something like that happens, how do you not blame yourself? Not that you should. I just want to, because a lot of folks go right to self-blame. Yeah. I mean, I just feel like this is something that is not his fault. And this is not something that is my fault. This is something that has happened to him. And then this is just something that we need to learn and, and deal with. You know, I don't, why don't I internalize it? I don't really know why. It's just like, I know that this is no one's fault, you know, and it's not my fault or his fault. And that just kind of gives me, peace, I guess, you know, to do whatever it is that I need to do. I've, I've never internalized it. I think that's your secret. I yeah. think that's your secret. Yeah. I think that's your superpower there. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think it's when we internalize and personalize that we cannot move forward. It's the thing that pulls us down. But when you know that it's not about you, then you can be empowered to move forward. Yeah, honestly, it's just not about me, you know, not about him. It's just the cards that we were dealt. (laughs) And, you know, I know a lot of people that have siblings with mental illness, that their siblings were diagnosed much younger. And in the very beginning of my brother's journey, I'm like, why wasn't he less than 18 when this started happening? That way, as a family, we can force him into treatment and stuff like that. You know, those are thoughts that go into your mind when you're trying to get your sibling help or get your loved one help. And then they don't want help. And then also navigating the whole HIPAA and hospital stuff, you know, and now I realize that just things happen for a reason, you know, maybe my brother got sick as an adult so that him and I can have such a strong bond so that when something like this does happen to him, like, I just want to be there for him, you know, maybe if he had gotten sick when he was younger, 
we wouldn't have the bond that we have now, you know? So I just feel like everything happens for a reason, whatever the reason might be, have trust that it's working out that way for whatever the reason is. Yeah. That's the full circle moment. Yeah, that is absolutely. Talk to me a little bit more about what you think about the future with your brother. I'm excited to see what the future holds for my brother. He, he was just so long that he was not in treatment. Nice. I am just so proud of him. No, for keep sure. saying it. Keep <laughs> saying it. <laughs> it's incredible. It's incredible. The transformation that he's done. You know, he's been street homeless, not even having an ID to his name, you know, all the way to now able to live on his own, which is such a big feat. And, you know, for the most part, he manages his day to day. We joke that I'm like his manager because, you know, I I manage- <laughs> I'm, I'm like, hey, did you do your laundry? You know, and stuff like that. But the future for him looks really bright. I think that with him staying in treatment and having the family support, like, yes, medicine and therapy are important, but family support is so much more important than that. They want to feel normal, right? They want to have regular relationships, you know, with the people around them. And I think that that's just such an important part of it. So as long as we keep having, you know, the treatment and the family support, I think he's going to do well. You know, right now he's not working and he does say that that's something that he wants to do in the future. So little by little baby steps. It's five years and it seems like it's so long. Like when I was thinking about recounting like the everything that has happened in my head, I'm like, it's only been five years, but it feels as though it's passed by so quickly and so much has happened. I tell my brother all the time, you are the strongest person I know. If I had to go through anything that my brother went through, I don't think I would have survived it. And I'm just being totally honest. And then not only just the physical aspects of him actually being homeless and stuff like that, but then combine that with what must have been going on in his head at the same time, you know? Right. right. So I, I tell him all the time, like, you're the strongest person I know. And I think that letting him know that I am proud of him, you know, I lay out everything that he's done. Like, listen, just two years ago, you were in the hospital. Like you couldn't even celebrate new years with us or Christmas with us. And reminding them of those things that they've done, I think gives them so much courage to be able to just keep going. You know, people who live with mental illness, they have to wake up every day and battle that. And we need to have some grace and really just identify them for what they are. And they really are really strong, in my opinion, very strong people. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I think it's so very important to point out their strengths. What is it they've done right? What it is that their authentic self is, who they truly are, because you know who that person really is. And that person can just really just get buried under a whole host of negative emotions and negative thought patterns. And people just look at them and they judge them for that. And that's what they see, but they don't really understand the truth. And I think that, you know, probably your way of looking at someone that is homeless now for me has completely shifted. I never used to think, oh, that's someone's child. That's someone's brother. That's someone's mother. That's someone's sister, but it is. And so just knowing that you have that level of empathy is incredible. And I think that, you know, we can really attribute your brother's success and the speed of it to the kind of support that that you've been able to give him. Thank you. I appreciate that. I would agree. <laughs> I agree. I agree. His manager. <laughs> His manager. No, um, you know, seriously speaking, yes, I have been able to help him a lot, but it's because he's allowed me to help him. Sure. You know, he's allowed me to help him and being that he's willing to accept my advice. And then I just kind of reach out to all these people. Hey, what organizations and 
we've been able to get him in a good place. It's teamwork, you know, teamwork. It takes a village. Sometimes I do feel, you know, overwhelmed and I'll be like, okay, I just need a day where I don't have a to-do list for my brother today because I need a day for myself. And it's okay to take that time, you know, being the caregiver, being the sibling, it's okay to be like, you know what? No, I don't want to do that today. I, I don't have the energy to take you food shopping. So it's just going to have to get done tomorrow, you know? And cause I always say I have to be like a whole hundred percent, all cylinders firing in order for me to be there and help him as well. So when I need a day, I take a day and I'll just be like, listen, are you good? Okay. Unless something is happening, please don't call me, you know? And we have a good understanding, my brother and I on, you know, everything I will do for him. He stays in treatment. I will be there a hundred percent of the way. That is yet another great lesson for so many people to hear and and to be able to learn that setting boundaries is so incredibly important so that you can show up 100% for your loved one. And to do that in a way where you don't feel guilt, where you don't feel, oh, well, what if? And to trust and to know that, you know, he can be empowered on that day on his own and call you at the end of the day and say, guess what? I did did all this on my own. And there's nothing better than that moment. For that, just to kind of bring us towards the end of this, give us a little bit of advice on how folks who are listening can go from feeling helpless to empowerment. Just keep going. (laughs) Honestly, it's as simple as that. It's one foot in front of the other, one day at a time. Just keep going. You know, for the majority of my brother's journey, he was not in treatment. He didn't really want my help, but I just kept showing up for him. You know, if I found out that he was at this shelter the next day, I was at that shelter, even sometimes the same day. Like my friends will tell you and my family, like I would show up. Show up for them. Let them know that you're there for them, regardless if they want to hear you or accept your help. Let them know, hey, I'm here when you're ready. And I think that that makes a world of a difference. So just keep going. That would be the best advice I can give. Keep showing up. I cannot thank you enough for this. This being our first podcast interview for Sibling Stories, you have just been an incredible inspiration. Your brother is so lucky to have you. And I just cannot thank you enough for kind of just being so very honest and open. It's my pleasure when you guys asked me to be a part of the podcast. Like I almost had tears in my eyes because I was just, wow, they see some type of value in my story, you know, and I can help someone. And I've gotten so much help and just support from everyone else's stories. I wanted to share my story and just let people know that things do get better. There is a light at the end of the tunnel and I'm honored. So thank you for the opportunity as well. Thank you.